Father, we do need you all the time, and uh, you are so gracious and so kind to have uh, brought about uh, the forgiveness of sin so that we can boldly come before your throne and receive grace and find mercy, or receive mercy and find grace in time of need. We need you, Lord God, and I just pray as we come to your word today that you would help us, help us to understand exactly what your Son intended, that your Spirit would work in our hearts that which is pleasing, so that we would respond in a manner that is uh, glorifying to you. And I pray for anyone here or anyone listening that's not saved, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would use your powerful word to pierce their hearts, that they might see their sin and turn to Christ for salvation. We pray for that. Bless your word as it goes out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God's word makes it abundantly clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, that there are none righteous, not even one. We, because of Adam, are those who come into this world in sin, and yet God is a gracious God who has brought forth the opportunity for forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Now, the reality is that every man apart from Christ is lost and destined for judgment. Yet, sometimes from the outside, we may not be able to see or understand who is really on their way to judgment. Take, for instance, the Pharisees and the scribes. They looked very religious, and yet the Lord Jesus exposed them, as we'll see today, to be those who were on their way to judgment. And maybe some of you are very religious. On the outside, it looks clean, looks wonderful, Uh, But on the inside, uh, the Lord Jesus needs to expose to you where you really stand so that you would not go to the judgment. So today we're going to see how we can escape judgment as we look at the true nature and the insides of those who reject Christ. And we're going to finish our study of Jonah by looking at the passage in which our Lord Jesus refers to Jonah and the Ninevites. So would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 38 to 45. Now Matthew was about the Messiah King, about King Jesus. Matthew is about God the Son who took on human flesh to save his people from their sins. God the Son who took on human flesh to save us from our sins. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came to the Jewish people his own, those who would name the Lord's name, And they were in sin, sitting in darkness. And Jesus, having graciously had the way prepared by John the Baptist for him, uh, calling upon the people to repent, came and taught and preached the kingdom. He shared the gospel. Believe, repent and believe the gospel. And in the book of Matthew, we see the teaching in in chapters 5 through 7, affirmed by the miraculous in chapters 4 and then 8 and 9. And Jesus proclaimed a repentance for the forgiveness of, of sins. And then we see in chapter 10 that he instructs his disciples in the midst of a multitude of lost souls. He had compassion, uh, told them to beseech the Lord of the harvest uh, because of so many lost souls. Then in chapters 11 and 12 so far, we see the outright rejection and opposition to Jesus Christ becoming clearly manifest, clearly manifest. Indeed, in chapter 11, the Lord Jesus compares this present generation who had rejected the forerunner, John the Baptist. Uh, He compares them to spoiled children who get upset when uh, other children won't play the games the way they want to play. We also see Jesus' brutal condemnation of the unrepentant cities, those who would experience a stricter judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah because they had rejected Christ who was in their midst. Yet Jesus made it clear, as we see, then we came to, then on the heels of that, we see that Jesus condemns, uh, in chapter 12, the Pharisees who tried to set him up as a Sabbath breaker. Uh, they had begun plotting and planning to destroy him. Plotting and planning to destroy him. And then as we've had read for us, it's clear that these, uh, had committed the unpardonable sin, that they had spoken against the clear conviction of the Holy Spirit concerning Christ, the sin which is unforgivable. These uh, multitudes and these Pharisees and scribes, they had seen the signs which Christ had performed, delivering a demoniac who was dumb and blind, casting out demons, giving him sight and speech. 
they also attributed, and, and they had attributed those miracles not to God, but to Satan. And Jesus made it clear that that sin was unforgivable. They crossed the line where they had rejected that conviction of the Holy Spirit concerning Christ, and they had attributed it to Beelzebub, to Satan. And so Jesus called out the Pharisees where they really were. They were a brood of vipers. They were, a, they were evil. They were the offspring of deadly, venomous snakes. And so at that point, he makes it clear that those who appear to be righteous were actually really wicked and that their words would expose really where their hearts were. So with this in mind, how can one escape eternal judgment? Uh, notice uh, we're going to see the true nature and destiny of those who reject Christ. Matthew 12:38. Let's read together. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, "Teacher, we want to see a sign from you." But he answered and said to them, "An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet." For just as Jonah was 3 days and 3 nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the son of man be 3 days and 3 nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Uh, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes along and takes seven, seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first that is the way it, shall, way it will also be with this evil generation. So then how can one escape eternal judgment? First of all, you need to realize that, and we need to realize that eventually our rejection of Christ will manifest in our words. It will manifest in what we say no matter how religious we may appear to be. Notice here, the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees uh, seek to discredit Christ by requesting a sign. Verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, this on the surface, this may seem like a legitimate request, but as we're going to see in a moment, uh, this was not a legitimate request. This was a wicked request which reveals wicked hearts. Notice our passage begins with the term then, or literally you could say at this time. Well, what time was this? When did this happen? What was going on? Well, in chapter 12, Jesus has already unveiled the wickedness of the Pharisees, revealing they had committed the unpardonable sin, uh, revealing their hearts were wicked and evil, and that they speak from the abundance of hearts that are evil. And although they appear to be good, what their, their speech condemns them. Look again, back a little farther behind us here, just before our passage, in verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of the good treasure brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment, for by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Then, that's where our passage starts, right in the middle of this. Then we see here some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. So they're not falling on their knees so realizing their sin. They're going to go ahead and try to, uh, as we're going to see, manipulate Jesus for the sakes of the crowds, as we'll say. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. Now, the scribes were not priests. Uh, they were those from other tribes. However, they were learned in the law. They were those who understood the scriptures. They were the spiritual legal beagles of that time, the scriptural legal beagles. They were those who were the authority on how to interpret 
the law of God. They were the experts. And it's interesting, we'll see later on that the Lord Jesus reminds them of scriptural events such as Jonah and the Queen of Sheba. We'll see that. Lord Jesus brings those up because they should have understood those events. They should have understood. Now the Pharisees, uh, they came with the scribes also. And if you'll remember, the Pharisees were the strictest sect of Israel's theocracy. The term Pharisee meant separated ones. And the Pharisees were those who hypocritically separated themselves from those they called sinners and the common Jews. And they had taken the law apart from its rightful context by God given to reveal sin and in their hypocrisy believed they could keep the law apart from a true relationship with God. And therefore they added in all sorts of little laws to help them interpret the law, which they, uh, which they had changed and had brought in their own little instructions. They were extremely prideful. They elevated themselves and their traditions over the word of God. Indeed, in Matthew 23, Jesus gives a scathing reproof and condemnation of these scribes and Pharisees because they were religious hypocrites on their way to hell. Matthew 23. So then, if we look at this, it seems like maybe this question is a genuine question, but if we look at the scribes and Pharisees and we look at what's going on, it's really not. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They give somewhat of a formal question. Now, this is not a legitimate question, I believe, from the scribes, because uh, we saw earlier in chapter 12, they were determined to destroy him. But yet they are doing this in front of the multitudes in which Jesus has been condemning them right in their midst. So he's condemning them in their midst, and right there they interrupt and say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, the term teacher could have been said in a hypocritical mocking sense, like teacher, like that possibly, or it could have been said in a, in a flattering sense because the Pharisees knew that the multitudes respected, in a sense, Jesus, thinking he was a prophet or sorts. They hadn't believed in him, but they knew that he respected them. So most likely they were trying to flatter the multitudes by saying teacher, because when you would say teacher to someone, you were saying that you've put yourself under their religious authority to learn from them. Okay, But I believe they were trying to flatter the multitudes, in a sense, concerning their uh, interactions with Christ. You know, the scriptures are really clear about flattery and how evil it is, and we need to be warned about it. Turn to Proverbs chapter 26. And we see that the Lord wants to warn us of the heart behind it. Because we experience the external reality of flattery, but we don't see the heart. But God gives us the information we need to know so that we can be warned and stay away from such people. Religiously speaking, by the way, this happens in a religious context here today in our passage. Proverbs 26, verse 24. He who hates disguises it with his lips. There we go. Exactly what's happened in our passage. But he lays up deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. He who digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. A lying tongue hates those it crushes. A flattering mouth worketh ruin. Worketh ruin. Well, we see in Romans chapter 16 that there, was, there are those that we are to keep our eyes on and to turn away from, right? Again, their MO is flattery, by the way. Uh, Romans 16, 17, I'll read this for you. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. Keep your eye on them, scope them out, and then it says, and turn away from them. We see here. Uh, for such men are, are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's revealing who they're really serving, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So it's most likely these Pharisees are saying, teacher, in a way, to flatter, not Jesus, they hated him, and he just was condemning them, but to flatter the crowds into thinking that they also want to hear from Jesus, to set him up then so that he might trip up or whatever it might be. So they say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And I say, reading the scriptures, knowing what's happened to this point, are you kidding? 
Are you kidding? We want to see a sign from you? Jesus has healed every kind of disease. He has cast out demons. He has raised the dead. He has given the blind sight, the, the deaf hearing, and the dumb speech. Indeed, the Pharisees just observed him casting out a demon, giving a man sight and speech, and they say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. Folks, this is the epitome of unbelief. And their words are now exposing them. Very interesting. Jesus just said their words are going to expose them. Now their words are beginning to expose them. So, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This is the epitome, as we see, of unbelief. Uh, They're saying, basically, you haven't performed enough to prove to us that you're the Messiah. We want to see another sign. We want to see maybe even a big sign. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came up to him, testing him and asked him to show them a sign from heaven. We want to see some big giant lightning bolts or stars crashing. Show us some big giant sign. It's quite possible that's what they're requesting there because they did later on in chapter 16. Now these Pharisees and scribes, they did not believe in Christ. They hated him and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to destroy him. Chapter 12 earlier, they wanted to destroy him. I don't believe they thought he could do anything spectacular spectacular at this point because they were in unbelief. And you know what? Those who are in their sin, unwilling to believe in Christ, will seek certain things. Will seek certain things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the wisdom of God, verse 21, of God Excuse me, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased, 1 Corinthians 1.21, that through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles, foolishness. They sought signs. You see, and those who have rejected Christ never, ever have enough evidence. They never have enough evidence. They never do. They want more and more and more, and they don't believe. And maybe there's some of you here today or listening that have rejected Christ as evidenced by your words. There's nothing that satisfies you concerning Christ. No matter how many answers from the word of God you have heard, you're not satisfied because you don't believe. You don't believe in Christ. You see, the purpose of signs and wonders were to authenticate the person and work of Christ and not to validate human perceptions, curiosity, or desires. An evil and adulterous generation has seen these signs. They've seen enough signs to authenticate Christ, but they have not believed. They have not believed. The Pharisees and scribes in their unforgivable state were calling upon Jesus to do a sign so as, we'll see, to discredit him and later on so that they could actually deliver him up and kill him, as we'll say. They were playing on the wicked desires of the multitudes of unbelievers who desired signs. So they're going to call it for a sign. They're going to call it for one. Now let me make it clear here on a side note that no one believes or repents because of signs and wonders. Yes, Jesus performed signs, so did some of the prophets and apostles, but that was to affirm the testimony of the gospel. It doesn't say in Scripture, signs and wonders are the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't say that. Signs and wonders save nobody. It is the gospel that saves, the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Is this not what the writer of Hebrews said uh, concerning those who were being warned not to reject the truth of Christ? Let me share this, Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. You better listen, uh, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, that's the first covenant, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord, 
It was confirmed by those of us who heard God bearing witness with them, both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. He bore witness of the truth of the gospel, and these Jews and Pharisees had heard it over and over again, and they had rejected it. So then, don't get caught up in signs and wonders. First of all, God is done with signs and wonders until the tribulation. He used them with the first coming, and he'll use them in the second coming. But we have the completed word. We have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ. If you are in a signs and wonders church, get out of that church. It is another evidence revealing that those who are leading it do not believe the truth concerning Christ because they want signs. The word of God is not enough for them, and that is an evidence of unbelief. So then, back in our passage, these Pharisees and scribes confirmed their rejection of Christ by attempting Jesus to do a miraculous sign. On the outside, doesn't look too bad, but they're actually uh, very wicked on the inside. Notice here, it is an evil and adulterous generation that rejects Christ and seeks a sign. Look at our passage. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher... We want to see a sign from you. And think about, again, the context. Jesus is condemning them, saying their words will condemn them. And right in the midst of that, they ask for a sign. Their words are condemning them, by the way, right in front of us and in front of everyone else. But he answered and said to them, Jesus saying back to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus doesn't say, okay, since I'm God in human flesh, I'm going to do what you say. You see, God never allows us to approach him on our terms. It is on his terms that we approach the Lord God through the forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ. So he answered them and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. This is a scathing rebuke. He calls them two things, evil and adulterous. Now notice Jesus is expanding on his condemnation of the Pharisees and scribes to now the multitudes. Because the Pharisees knew and they were trying to manipulate it, flatter them, manipulate it by asking for a sign because they knew they wanted a sign. And so Jesus responds to their evil craving of a sign. He says they are evil and adulterous. You see, when you reject Christ and you want stuff to be shown to you so that you can believe whatever it might be, that's evil. That's evil. You're still in your sins. Because apart from Christ, you are in your sins. There is none who does good. There is none who are righteous, not even one. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are in our sins, and we are, in a sense, as we will see, evil. And they were evil in wanting to have a sign, and the Son of God was in their midst, and they did not believe. So here's where the rubber meets the road concerning good and evil. Those who are evil reject Christ after having been confronted with the truth of the gospel. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that uh, when you don't believe, God allows the God of this world to harden your minds, the minds of the unbelieving. Very dangerous, scary thing. You see, the epitome of evil is the rejection of Christ. Rejection of Christ, no matter how good you might think you are. If you have rejected Christ, that is the most evil act you have rejected the God who gave himself for you. You've rejected his uh, conviction by his spirit. And it is unforgivable when the spirit convicts you of your sin and you reject that. It's unforgivable. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So then we have this statement, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Evil. They wouldn't have thought they were evil. They were pretty religious, by the way. They were coming to their, their synagogue stuff. They were doing their thing. They were submitting to the law. They were doing all this stuff, right? Seemed like, but they were evil. And notice they were also an adulterous generation. 
Now, I don't need to explain too much because we understand what the term adultery means. It speaks of one who has broken the marriage covenant and had relations with another. That's what adultery speaks of. And so an adulterous generation in the spiritual context is they were committing spiritual adultery. You see, the Jews had made a covenant with the Lord at Sinai. They were to be his alone, yet they had rejected the Lord because they did not believe they tried to approach him, Romans chapter 10, by their deeds and righteousness rather than by faith. They had rejected the Lord for a religion, in a sense, of their own making. They were committing spiritual adultery. And I tell you today, everyone who claims to follow Christ, who claims to follow the Lord, yet does not believe in Christ, is a spiritual adulterer. And folks, even in the church, those who are saved can commit a temporal spiritual adultery. Turn to James chapter 4. We see this principle. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. He's talking about what's the source of your quarrels and conflicts just after pointing out that there's two types of wisdom we can function on, either God's wisdom from above or the wisdom from below, and there's fruit that comes from both of those, bad fruit and good fruit. Talks about how uh, in chapter 4 that the reason why we have quarrels is we want our desires, yet we don't get it, and then we pray for it, but we pray with the wrong motives, whatever it might be. That's what happens. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 4 of James, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell within us. You see, when we are friends with the world, and in this context, friends with the world, by having worldly wisdom and functioning by that, and thus having conflict, we're functioning by our own desires, we're friends of the world, we see that we are committing adultery. Now, those who don't know Christ are adulterers, adulterers if they claim to follow Christ. Then you have the world out there that doesn't have anything to do with Christ. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about those who would name the name of the Lord, but were committing spiritual adultery. Committing spiritual adultery. On a side note, what's the um, solution to spiritual adultery for, for believers, at least from James? First of all, it's to humble yourself and submit to God. James 4, 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's the solution. If you have been functioning by the world's wisdom and ways, and which is going to be exposed in your conflict that's throughout your household and your work and all over the place. He says, submit, therefore, to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double mind, to be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. This is called repentance, by the way. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. So then, the solution for anyone caught in spiritual adultery is to repent and submit themselves to Christ. To submit themselves to the Lord, right? Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Yet back in our passage, turn back to Matthew 12 again, back in our passage, we see that Jesus is exposing the wickedness of these people. They crave or literally eagerly seek for a sign. Eagerly seek for a sign. Now some of you might be like these multitudes, seeking after signs and wonders, things that will tickle your ears, uh, you want to experience Christ rather than believe in him and obey him. Uh, you might be just what Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation craving a sign. Next time you have those cravings, I would encourage you to read this passage and examine your hearts to see where you really are. I exhort you to repent. Again, the purpose of signs were to authenticate the person and word of Christ, not to validate human perceptions, desires, or curiosities. So then, what does he say here? He makes it clear there are going to be no more signs, but yet one, one sign, but the sign of Jonah. Notice what he says here. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, back in our passage, and yet no sign shall be given to it. You're not going to get what you're asking for, but I'm going to give you something, but the sign of Jonah, 
the prophet. This is the sign that you're going to see. This is the sign you're going to see. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the wicked and adulterous generation craves a sign. How does Jesus respond? No sign shall be given. Now on a side note, brothers and sisters, when you've got someone who is wanting to more, more proof, 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 rather than hearing the word of God, being convicted of their sins, we need to learn from Jesus. No sign shall be given except the sign of Jonah. He's going to talk about his death, his burial, and resurrection. That's what we need to share with those who are in unbelief. That's what we need to share. No sign shall be given but the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Jonah the prophet, Jesus says. Now, we just got done going through the book of Jonah. We had that blessed opportunity. So let me recap just basically what happened here. Remember, God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim against them because of their wickedness. But Jonah, because of his attitude towards the Ninevites and not getting his way, he disobeys God and goes the opposite direction, headed towards Tarshish. But the Lord does not allow him to get far, and he sends a great storm upon the ship, a storm in which they're about to perish, and the pagans call upon their gods. They try to discern why the calamities come upon them. In God's sovereign providence, the lot falls on Jonah. He's questioned, and the cat's out of the bag. He is the reason this is happening, because he is running from the presence of God. And he is one who fears the Lord. The sailors desperately try to save the ship and Jonah, something Jonah didn't care about. Um, but things get worse, and yet within that, the most wonderful thing happens. The sailors get saved. They call upon the Lord, recognizing his sovereignty, and then we see there they worship him, and Jonah's discipline continues as he is thrown into the sea, the Lord having appointed a great fish or a big fish to swallow him. And then we saw the depths of God's discipline in chapter 2 where Jonah is praying from the belly of the fish, recounting a prayer in which he is drowning and losing his life. And Jonah was brought to within an inch of his life in the context of God's discipline. Some thought maybe he did uh, perish, being a type of Christ. We'll, we'll We'll find out in heaven. But what we do know is God's discipline bore fruit in Jonah. He thanks the Lord for the salvation he desires to obey, and he recognizes all salvation is from the Lord, and then God had the fish vomit up Jonah on the beach. And Jonah then goes and reluctantly goes to Nineveh, but goes, not reluctantly, goes, we'll see later on it was reluctant, and starts preaching, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And so back in our passage, Jesus himself confirms the truth of the book of Jonah. And he says here, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now in Scripture there are two different types of prophecies. There are predictive and typified. And what do I mean by that? Here we have in our passage, Jonah is a type of Christ. His experience in the the belly of the whale prefigures uh, the fact of what would happen to Christ when he would die on the cross and go in the grave for three days and three nights and then be resurrected. The implication is he's resurrected after three days and three nights. That's what it says. Now, some uh, would go into this point and say, well, wait a second, this term uh, three days and three nights, we count up the days, wait a second, was Jesus in the grave three days and three nights? Well, what we need to understand is the term day and night was a Jewish idiom, which could speak of any part of the day. You can look this up on your own, but if you go to the book of Esther, uh, we see that she declares a fast before before she'll approach the king for three days, night and day. Yet she approaches the king on the third day, not after the third day. You see? It's the same thing. Why am I saying this? Because the detractors to scripture say that this can't be true because he wasn't in the ground three days and three nights exactly. Well, that's not true. This is an idiom. If we understand it, he was buried on Friday, still in the grave Sunday, and rose from the dead, still in the grave Saturday, and rose from the dead on Sunday. Exactly what he said would happen. 
So then, this evil and adulterous generation, they had rejected Christ, therefore God would give them no sign, but the sign of the death and resurrection of Christ would be the last one that they see. That they see. And it is the only sign we need to see. That Jesus Christ died for our sins. And he was buried. And he rose on the third day. God bore our sins in his body on the cross. God who took on human flesh. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's the only sign we need to see. And when people want to know more and and see more miraculous things, uh, it is an evidence of unbelief. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. When they reject that, they have hardened hearts, and they are exhibiting that they are an evil, and if they still claim to know Jesus when they don't, they would be an adulterous generation. They claim to know the Lord. So then the only sign that would be given is that his son would be buried and raised from the dead. What about Matthew 16, 21? Jesus says this, from that time, Jesus, or the Lord, Matthew says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things. This is Matthew 16, 21. And from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. On the third day. So then, we have an evil and adulterous generation that craves a sign, and Jesus says, the only sign that you're going to have is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the heart of the was in the fish three days, three nights, so will the Son of Man that speaks of of God the Son, God who took on human flesh, the Son of Man, will be in uh, the ground. He'll be in the ground for three days and three nights. Now notice, if you reject Christ, there is eternal condemnation. No matter what you think. No matter if you think you know the Lord and you are rejecting Christ, if you outwardly uh, play the game of coming to church, pretending to follow Jesus, and you have rejected him, there is eternal condemnation that's coming. Look at our passage back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment. So there's going to be a judgment, as we're going to see. We'll talk about that. And the men of Nineveh, those are those who repented. We'll see this in Jonah chapter 3. They're going to stand up in, in the context in against this generation, this evil adulterous generation, in the judgment. And shall what? Condemn it because they, that's the men of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And notice the second illustration. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. There is going to be a judgment. And we know that saints shall judge the world. We know that from 1 Corinthians. So then here we have a startling statement because Jesus is telling these Jews that Gentiles who repented will condemn them at the judgment, even a woman, even a woman. Now, there's some really interesting things here that we don't have time to get into, but I want to point out a few observations, and they're very interesting. First of all, in the first true illustration, you have a Jew, Jonah, going to the Gentiles, the men of Nineveh. In the second illustration, you have a Gentile queen going to a Jew, Solomon. You have the prophet Jonah and King Solomon, yet Jesus makes it clear that he is greater than both of them. He is greater than both of them. You might remember, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, the men of Nineveh repented of the preaching of Jonah. Tremendous, wonderful reality. Jonah chapter 3. Let's turn there. Jonah chapter 3. Wonderful reality. Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days Nineveh will be overthrown. Remember, he was to proclaim what the Lord would tell him, right? And that's what the Lord told him. Then the people of Nineveh did what? They believed in God. We're going to see repentance in real time here. 
They believed in God, and they called out a fast and put on a sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe from him and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let beast, herd, flock, or flock taste a thing. Do not let him eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly. There you go. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on God earnestly. That each may turn from his wicked, uh, wicked way and the violence which he is in his hands. There's repentance, by the way. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger that we may not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them. Jonah proclaimed God's judgment upon the Ninevites for their sin, and they were convicted, and they turned to the Lord in repentance, and they were saved. And the point here that we know they were spiritually saved and that is that they will, at the judgment, stand up and condemn uh, this evil generation. As I mentioned in 1 Corinthians, it speaks of that the saints will judge the world. The Ninevites were saints, the men of Nineveh, who repented. They repented. So what's Jesus' point? Since the men of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching, how much more has this generation, uh, should this generation have repented at Christ's preaching, which was infinitely greater because God was in their midst. And therefore, since they didn't, they stand condemned. They stand condemned. Credible condemnation. Gentiles repented with little revelation except an understanding of God's judgment for sin. And these Jews had God in the flesh in their midst, and they had not repented. God had proclaimed from the beginning, God, Jesus, Lord Jesus in human flesh, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He'd been proclaiming it throughout. And folks, there is a judgment day where those Jews who rejected Christ as evidenced by their evil and adulterous hearts a manifest in their words would be condemned. And the Ninevites who repented would stand up on that judgment day, in the judgment, and condemn them because they had Christ in their midst and did not repent, that evil and adulterous generation. Remember what Jesus was sharing right before this passage started. The good man, verse 35, chapter 12, out of the good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. I say to you that every careless word men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. The day of judgment, by the way. For by your words you shall be justified, by your words you shall be condemned. Simply put, God will hold you accountable for every single word. And as we see in other passages of Scripture, every deed. And apart from Christ, your words and deeds will be exposed and you will be judged there is a judgment for sin you know we praise god when we see a righteous judgment on tv when someone makes a righteous judgment and how not will the god who is the righteous judge make righteous judgments concerning all sin he will he will because he's a holy god and he has to and as we're going to see there is a judgment for those who reject christ now believers have a judgment for rewards Judge the deeds in the body, not for sin. But non-believers, it is a judgment concerning sin. God says it is appointed man once to die. If anyone says uh, they went and they died and they came back to life, don't believe that. That's not true. It is appointed man once to die unless the Lord Jesus raised you from the dead or God did. That's back there. He's not doing that now, by the way. It is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. Scripture reveals there is a judgment day, and Jesus has declared this to these Jews and these generation already. Look back in Matthew chapter 10. He has declared it. They have had the truth of God and the God of the truth in their midst, and they have rejected it. And they are very culpable. Much more truth than the Ninevites had. Much more. Matthew 10, verse 14 Speaking of those uh, 
disciples he's sending out. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, that's the gospel they were supposed to share, as you go out of that house, shake off the dust off your feet. There's some principles there, by the way. And truly I say to you, will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Go a little farther, Matthew 11, verse 21. Woe to you, these, 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 these Galilean cities, woe to you, Chorazon, woe to you, Bethsaida, actually other cities, for, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Therefore I say to you, this is uh, Matthew 11:22, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. There are varying degrees of judgment, by the way. This passage clearly shows that. When someone says all sin is the same, no, it's not the same. All sin is, is good enough to bring death, okay? The wages of sin is death, but there's different sin. There's differing judgments. He says here, nevertheless, I say it should be more tolerable for his tire inside in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed as an example, yet there is much greater wickedness of those who had Christ in their midst. They saw and heard, they saw him, they heard the truth, they had the affirming miraculous, and they rejected him. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse uh, 13, the conclusion, when all is said and done, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this applies to every person. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, uh, whether it is good or evil. Acts chapter 17, remember this one, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere shall repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man which he appointed, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. There is judgment for sin, therefore you need to repent. Because without Christ's forgiveness, you are in deep trouble. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, if you're still in your sins, you haven't trusted in Christ, there is a terrifying judgment coming when you die. There's a terrifying judgment coming. Hebrews chapter 10, turn there with me. A couple more passages. The context here is those who forsake assembling, and they don't really care. They don't, they don't come together to, see, to seek love and good deeds because they don't have a changed heart. And he says here, uh, in, in light of that, explaining about, you know those who do that, Verse 26 of Hebrews 10, for if we go on sinning willfully, the context is not assembling, not seeking to love one another, not, not those things, right? After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. It's a pretty serious thing. Later on, he'll say, um, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. One last passage about judgment. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. This is for non-believers. This is for those who have not had their sins covered. This is what will happen. You're hearing it today, and I pray you don't go there. I pray you respond. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away, and no place were found for them. You can't get away from this. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Spirits and, and bodies coming together for a judgment unto, or resurrection unto judgment, Matthew, Matthew, John 5. And he says here, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Earlier in chapter 3, it is those who overcome who are in the book of life. Same writer in 1 John 5, it is those who believe in Jesus who overcome. We overcome sin and death through faith in Jesus. And the Ninevites overcame sin and death through crying out to God, recognizing their sin. The men of Nineveh, back in our passage, shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater is here. The issue is repentance. The issue is repentance. We know from uh, Luke chapter 16, the rich man in Lazarus, he says, well, the Lord wouldn't give him any relief from his suffering, so he says, send, send Lazarus down to warn my family and brothers. And he said, basically, you know what? They have Moses and the scriptures. I let them believe that. For they're not going to respond, repent, even if one comes back from the dead. So then, the issue is repentance. Jesus is saying to these Jews, you are greatly condemned because something so much greater than Jonah is in your midst. And it was him. It was Christ. Now notice we have another illustration, another example from the Lord. Back in Matthew 12, look at verse 42. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment, shall condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus uses another biblical account from the Old Testament. These Jews should have known it. The scribes knew it for sure. The Pharisees knew it. These Jews should have known it. The multitudes... First Kings, you can look at this on your own time, chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, describes this situation. And notice in verse 1, I'm going to read this for you, in First Kings 10, it says, The queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. Don't ever get this wrong. Queen of Sheba didn't just come to know about wisdom. She heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She was seeking the Lord. She was seeking the Lord. And the rest of the king's passage shows all those things that were surrounded that. And evidently, she was a very wealthy uh, group that came very large, came to Jerusalem. And uh, uh, she spoke to Solomon personally. Let me read this portion in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 6. Then she said to the king, It was true, the report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your exceeding wisdom and prosperity and the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are those servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Remember, Solomon shared the wisdom of God concerning the Lord. We see that in Proverbs, right? We see that, and she sought that. Blessed be the God, here's what she says, Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he has made you king to do justice and righteousness. The queen of Sheba believed too. She believed, and she's going to stand up in the judgment and condemn. She's going to condemn those Jews, because something greater than Solomon was in her midst. Solomon, yes, a great king, but something way greater than Solomon. God in human flesh in their midst for three years. For three years, not just a visit, but for three years. So back in our passage, the queen of the south shall rise up with the generation of the judgment, shall condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, folks, we have so much more concerning the Lord and his word right now in the scriptures. You have it right in your hands. And yet, maybe you don't seek the Lord. Maybe you seek fleshy signs and wonders in, in, in signs and wonders churches. You'd rather see a show than hear of Christ. You'd rather have a pep talk than hear the living word preached. Everyone who has rejected Christ, I cringe in thinking the judgment that you will have. I believe it will be worse than what was with Jesus. You have the word completed. You have so much truth. You have so much truth. I cringe. You see, you may be seeking all kinds of religious stuff, but the scriptures reveal 
that Christ is the one who saves. Even the word itself doesn't save you. It is Christ who saves you. If you come to the word to try to obey it on your own, to do the things in here, you're not going to be saved from that. It is Christ who saves and then instructs us. John 5.39, Jesus says to the, to, the, to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is these who bear witness of me. They bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. And that's the issue. Great judgment. There is a judgment day. God declares that all are sinners, and he calls on all men to repent everywhere and to just acknowledge your sin and to turn to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And if you reject that, your judgment is going to be great. I pray you would repent before you are judged. Well, what happens if you don't repent and you kind of hang out religiously? What happens? What happens if you hang around and you continue to play the religious games? What happens? Notice we have a seemingly disconnected portion of Scripture, but it is connected. Look at verse 43 back in Matthew chapter 12. This should scare you to death if you don't know Christ. Now when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, put in order, Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will also be with this evil generation. On the surface, it seems totally disconnected, but it is completely connected to what we saw. It's an illustration here, and then there's an application There's an illustration in the demonic sphere, and then there's an application. Notice we see the terrifying reality of evil and wickedness, and Jesus uses the illustration of demons leaving men and possessing them again. Now, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, unclean spirit is a demon, it's a fallen angel, goes out of a man that appears that they were already in there, he's possessed, right? It passes through waterless places seeking rest, and it does not find it. These are fallen angels. They are demonic spirits. They are wicked. Notice we get insight from Jesus into the spiritual sphere. He says here, and I'm not going to get into this because I shared this in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 and chapter 12 earlier. You can look at those CDs. Not going to get into demons and stuff. And and I want to remind uh, believers, since we're filled with the Spirit of God, I don't believe we can be possessed at all. We have the Spirit of God in us. But if you are not saved, demons can possess and do possess those uh, who are not saved. When an unclean spirit, fallen angel, demon, leaves a body, evidently they pass through waterless places seeking rest. It cannot find it. What is this waterless places? I believe he's speaking of the sphere or dimension of the spiritual which we cannot perceive or understand. It is beyond the material, water-based creation. I don't think he's speaking of them going out into the desert like some interpreters. I don't believe that's the case. Evidently, when demons exit men, they go into waterless places And in these places, they seek rest, but they cannot find it. Notice the demons have intelligence. We'll see they have will. They are unclean. They are evil. They have fallen, and they have allegiance to Satan. And so what happens? Then it says they've got a will. They've got a thought, the think-thought process. It says, I will return to what? My house. They take ownership, don't they? My house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. The unclean spirit decides to go back in his house. He claims ownership. He says, I will return to my house, which I came. This should terrify some of you who don't know Christ. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. The term unoccupied speaks of a vacant building. The term swept speaks of swept with a broom. And the term put in order is the Greek word we have for cosmetics or adornment. It's unoccupied, it's swept, and it's adorned. It's been cleaned up. And then notice, 
And when it comes, and then it says, verse 45, then it goes, it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in, that's the person, it's a man, right? And they live there. And the state of that man becomes worse than the first. If you don't know Christ, you are in the domain of darkness. And you are vulnerable to the demonic. You are vulnerable to it. You need to be saved and delivered. And Jesus will deliver you. And you don't have to worry about the demonic ever again because Christ is far above. Far above. Notice he says, the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And what does he say? That is the way it will be also with this evil generation. There's the application. Here's the illustration. Demons possessing, leaving, coming back, finding it clean, bringing worse, making the place worse. How does this apply to the Jews? That generation. I believe he's applying it to their religious hypocrisy. They had rejected the Lord. They had been involved in great idolatry, the Jews, throughout the Old Testament. They got exiled to Babylon. It's apparent when they came back to Israel, they got rid of their idols. No idolatry after the exile. We don't see idolatry. The house was cleaned up, swept up, and adorned, yet it was not filled with a relationship with the living God. It was not filled with Christ. They had rejected Christ, and I believe he's saying their state of evil and their punishment and their last it will be much much worse. Vivid illustration. If you are not saved and you don't respond to the truth and you continue in this way, you're going to be that much worse. You get cleaned up. Come to church, you get cleaned up. Some of your bad stuff gets taken care of. You're going to be that much worse in the end. And I've seen it with people, very people who are very religious, but not saved. And the last state is worse than the first. Kids, there is a real danger that you can have a clean life because of hearing the truth being around the church. But if you don't respond to Christ by trusting in him personally, Jesus, save me, you'll find the last state of your life in ruins much more than the beginning. Much more than the beginning. Repent of your sin, trust in Christ before it's too late before it's too late. And here, on a side note, this is one of the problems with trying to reform society from the outside apart from Christ. It's one of the problems, by the way. That's why the Lord Jesus tells us to pray for our leaders, and ultimately the context is salvation. That's how things change. So then, another even another warning. You go to 12 steps, clean yourself up. Without Christ, you're in deep trouble. You're in deep trouble. Last state, worse than the first. So then, how can we escape judgment? Well, if you reject Christ, you are evil, and if you're pretending to follow him, you're adulterous, and you will be judged. And I believe those who who were around you, who, who uh, believe the truth of God, they'll certainly stand up in the judgment. We see the Ninevites. We see the Queen of Sheba. And there's a lot of applications here. But the good news is that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that there is no judgment, no condemning judgment, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you'll humble yourself and acknowledge your sin and believe, you'll be forgiven and there's no judgment, no condemning judgment. Some of you might be committing spiritual adultery. You're yoked with those who are spiritual adulterers in this current evangelical church. Confess and the Lord will forgive you. He'll forgive you. Brother and sister, how are we to respond? Praise the Lord for saving us. Praise the Lord for saving us. But by his grace, we could have gone the same way. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for him delivering us from our evil and our wickedness, delivering us from our sin. And folks, we need to have compassion towards those who are dying in their sins. We need to be ready to share his word We need to have a a readiness where we have set apart Christ as Lord of our hearts, being ready to give an account why we have hope, yet with gentleness and reverence. The reality is man apart from Christ is in sin and will be judged. Some may appear to be very righteous, but eventually 
they will be revealed for who they really are if they don't come to Christ before it's too late. There's a passage in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. If you're playing a game with the Lord, turn and believe and be saved, and he'll save you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your gracious warnings. I thank you for those of us who are saved, that you saved us. You saved us uh, through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins, which is freely offered. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is religious, who doesn't know you. I pray that they would repent and believe in Jesus today. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Save me from my sins. And Father, I pray uh, for those of us who are saved that we would not uh, be friends of the world, that we would not commit spiritual adultery, that we would allow your word to control our lives, not our own desires, that your will would be that which controls us. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.